Are you longing for real-life change and lasting impact? At More to Be, we believe that is possible through a fresh encounter with God and His Word. I'm Lisa Pulliam, the founder of More to Be and host of the More to Be podcast. And I'm here to help you think biblically and live transformed, to be more like Jesus as you seek to join God in His work every day. Today's podcast is super special for a number of reasons. We have our first man as a guest on the More to Be podcast. And he comes to us with a a special story that I think is going to touch all of our lives as we listen to him and also a whole lot of experience. So his name is Sheridan Boise and his formal bio is this. He's a writer, speaker, and broadcaster on faith and spirituality. He's the author of seven books, uh, including The Making of Us, Who We Can Become When Life Doesn't Go As Planned, Resurrection Year, Turning Broken Dreams Into New Beginnings, plus Resilient and the award-winning Unseen Footprints. His writing has been featured in various publications, and he writes regularly for Our Daily Bread, a devotional read by 90 million people daily. Sheridan is a presenter of Pause for Thought on BBC Radio's second Zoe Ball breakfast show, heard by 9 million people daily. He's conducted over 2,000 radio interviews in his 25-year broadcast career and has been featured on BBC Breakfast, BBC News, Day of Discovery, 100 Huntley Street, Moody Radio, and various other broadcasts and print outlets. He speaks at conferences and events around the world, and he is gracing us today with a story that is real and and powerful, and I'm just really glad that you're here, Sheridan. So welcome to the More To Be podcast. Oh, thank you, Lisa. And thank you for the, the kind introduction. And, you know, funnily enough, by the time we finish our conversation, we'll probably scrap everything that you've just written and read uh, to talk about something much more fundamental. But I really appreciate this time. Yeah. And I sometimes I, I get right into it and we don't go through the bios, but I, I was I really took pause when you reached out to me and asked to be on the podcast. And I've read your bio, which I was like, wow, this guy's walked some roads and interacted with lots of people and can bring to us kind of a breadth of experience as you as you share your own personal struggle with us. So why don't you just kind of jump right in and tell us what is the story of making of us and and that you that that personal story? I know what it is, but I want you to share it with our listeners. Yeah. Okay. Well, The Making of Us is the latest book. And yeah, the subtitle, Who We Can Become When Life Doesn't Go As Planned. It actually is the follow-on from a previous book called Resurrection Year, which you mentioned. Resurrection Year really told our full story. The Making of Us then picks out two particular points that I kept on hearing from literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of readers after they'd read Resurrection Year. And that was the question about identity and purpose after Life has not gone as planned when the dream has broken. What was our dream? Okay, let me give you two. I was in broadcasting for all those years, and I had a particular dream to start a particular radio show in Australia when we were still living in Australia that would reach Australia's secular minds with the things of Christian faith. It took 10 years to come about. But then it did come about in a show called Open House. And very soon we had 150,000 listeners on a Sunday night, which was good for Australian figures. Half of them weren't Christians. Half of them were. We, had, um, we would have imams calling in some nights. We had a Hindu priest calling in one night. We had Scientologists. We had Christians. We had people of all different walks of life calling in, and we were discussing things of faith. I love it was it. a dream come true. Yeah. Oh, man. It, you know, it was my baby. It really was. During that same 10 years, my wife and I had a dream as well together, and that was the dream of starting a family. And you name it, Lisa, we pretty much tried it to make that dream come true. Um, We tried special diets. (laughs) We tried special supplements. Uh, We tried chiropractic, which to this day, I do not know why we tried that. You know, you're trying the thing if somebody says it might work. We tried healing prayer, of course, committed Mm. Christians. We tried that numerous times. We... Uh, tried IVF for the first time in 2006, had all of our friends and family praying, and it didn't work. We then looked into adoption. We did eight months of assessment, followed by um, another two years waiting for the phone call to come, to come and pick, pick up our little boy, a little girl. The phone call never came. We never found out why because of confidentiality issues. Um, by the end of that 10 years, we then decided we would do as many rounds of IVF as it took to have our dreamt of child. And would you believe it that on the very last round, we had one embryo left 
And we had decided already, if this embryo doesn't work into a viable pregnancy, uh, we've given this 10 years now, we've tried everything that we feel comfortable doing, we're going to move on as a childless couple. And would you believe that a couple of weeks before Christmas, on uh, in December of 2010, uh, we received a phone call from Emily at the IVF clinic. And she said to Merrin, my, my wife, it's looking good. And Merrin said, uh, define the word good. Sure. <laughs> are we talking about, yeah, it's looking good, or are we talking about it's looking good? And Emily said, look, all of your hormone levels are exactly where we'd expect them to be right now for a pregnancy. Mm. So you can imagine the jubilation that erupted amongst our family and our friends who've been walking with us for now 10 years. Yeah. And then we received another phone call on Christmas Eve of 2010. Yeah. It was Emily from the IVF clinic, and she said, I'm so sorry, you're not pregnant. And with that, Merrin walked into our room, put the phone down, curled up in a fetal position. Sure. And that's where our dream of having a child ended from that point on. And that really kind of launched us into, well, now what will our lives be? We then went in our resurrection year, and that was our 12 months of starting again. And that resulted in us coming from moving from Sydney in Australia to here, Oxford, the United Kingdom, and starting our lives again. Merrin getting a job at Oxford University, which was the making of her, and then me having to go on a completely different journey because everything that was going very well for me career-wise and ministry-wise in Sydney ended. Oh. The publishing opportunities dried up because when I got here to the UK, they were saying, well, who are you, Sheridan? You know, it's all about platform these days and we haven't heard of you. Maybe you had people who knew you in Sydney and in Australia, uh, but not so much in the UK. No. Uh, speaking opportunities didn't come. Who was, who was Sheridan Boise? And of course, the BBC back then weren't returning my phone calls because, you know, why have an Australian on air when we've got very good people around here who know the culture and know it much better? Uh, so I had to, after building my identity as a writer, speaker, and broadcaster for 15 odd years, then to having that taken away, had to say, well, Sheridan, who are you really? Sure. And then it turned out that many, many people who read Resurrection Year were asking those same two questions. And so I realized, you know what? I need to go on a journey for myself and for my readers to find out, okay, who can you become now when things haven't worked out the plan? Who can you become now? And I can say from conviction that this can be the very moment you can become the person you're supposed to be. It can actually be the making of you. Oh, totally. I I relate on a a gazillion different levels, but not because of my journey with infertility. That's been the opposite. I have four children. And so um, I walked through the road of infertility with best friends, with my sister, always, always feeling guilty that I was able to bear children so easily. And they were not like I, it was not fair. I felt like there were even times that I was pregnant with my second daughter. My two best friends were both struggling with infertility. And I, I said to the Lord, why did you give me this child? Why not give it to them? I already have one. Uh, and it, it, it became a lifelong struggle. But I had a friend say to me around that time, and, and um, she was walking through a pretty ser- serious trial, a health trial with, within her family. She's like, you had your heart, Lisa, when you were a child. So you don't have to have your heart now. And mm-hmm. I believed her. And I look back and now I know that's really bad theology. <laughs> <laughs> there is there is not a timeline for suffering. Uh, there is not you you met your quota and so you get to move on. Uh, <laughs> That'd be nice. <laughs> it would be so nice. It would be so incredibly nice. And so, um, you know, that was how she was coping with her pain. And I would say that you know a decade later she probably would sit with me now and say, well, that was crazy thinking. Uh, and so what you're saying is really that there is no quota on suffering. You already went through that horrible decade of infertility and struggle. Uh, did you find that there were, you felt at times that it was a consolation prize that you had a great career? Okay. Very good question. So there are some guys who really, really want children. My brother is like that. And when he heard about my struggles, he was worried himself that maybe that he and his wife were going to have problems. And he, it, was, it terrified him. He longed and longed to be a father. I have never had that deep drive to become a father. Having said that, I wonder sometimes now whether it's coming a little bit later on, where I'm seeing more and more, of course, 
uh, friends who they're little girls and I would have loved a daughter, you know, are growing up and, you know, they're doing wonderful things. I saw a wonderful family just a week ago and their 16 year old daughter is becoming a writer and my goodness, her work is astounding. And there was a bit of me at the said, you know, oh, why couldn't have I had that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I would have been much happier to have called our infertility journey to an end five years earlier than, yeah. than now. So we had time where we would go months where we would just kind of say, oh, maybe we're just, you know, we're just going to be a childless couple. And then, of course, the maternal drive, paternal drive that came on occasions would kick back in and we would decide to go and try something else. But there would be long seasons in which we didn't um, pursue anything. So the consolation prize is a factor in our story. It was a factor probably more so for Merrin. Mm. When we... Just before we had that phone call on Christmas Eve, we went down by the Sydney Harbour, wonderful little place, not far from where we lived, and we were looking over the water and Merrin said to me, uh, if this doesn't work and if this last embryo doesn't work as, and give us a child, I need something else. I need a consolation prize. And for her, the only other thing that she'd wanted to do and be rather than just become a mum was to live and work overseas. So actually her consolation prize came when we kind of kicked off and started our life again, if you like. Yeah. Uh, so that was her consolation prize. I've never really had a consolation prize because to some degree, after you've been through this journey for a decade, there is something of relief when you actually bring the journey to an end. And I think I was then finally ready. Okay, our lives have been on hold for such a long time. Let's move on, particularly when we were um, waiting for adoption. Um, I mean, we couldn't leave the state uh, because the phone call could come at any moment. And so, you know, we're waiting for a long time. Um, I was glad for that whole season to be over. And so for those people who are listening, who are wrestling with this wilderness, um, first thing you should know, you're not alone. Um, and secondly, all the feelings and experiences that you're having uh, are really valid. They really are, including the questioning God. Why aren't you coming through? Are you good? All those things. That's all very, very natural. It's also biblical. A whole bunch of biblical characters questioned God, wondered whether he was good. Jeremiah said, are you tricking me? You know, what are you doing with yeah. my life? <laughs> yeah. um, you know, we have some permission to ask some of those questions. Yeah, I'm glad you went there. So what was the outcome of asking God those why questions? <laughs> not a lot okay I, there was one there was one time when um our pastor and his wife uh, arranged a special prayer meeting for us and they did it really cleverly they decided that they would not tell some of the people that they were inviting to come and pray for us what the situation is a couple mm. of people already knew, the majority didn't. So it was just a small group of people, specially called to intercession. And so we all met in this lounge, lounge room and uh, we all got praying. And uh, after a little while, uh, one of the ladies says to Merrin, I just, I just feel I should pray for you in particular. Uh, for some reason, womb is coming to my mind and I feel like we should be praying, you know, for your womb, for an empty womb. You know what? God seemed to be leading them in that prayer, right? Yeah. And so about halfway through that uh, prayer time, we then stopped and then the pastors said, look, why don't you tell everybody then, you know, what yeah. you we've all gathered here to pray for. And then afterwards we started praying again. And then would you believe it that I reckon we sat there for another 15, 20 minutes of complete silence. We had asked a specific question. We wanted to know. We had already prayed all the prayers about healing and God miraculously intervening in our lives and giving us a child. By this stage, it was fairly late in that 10-year journey, and we now wanted to know, uh, is it time to call yeah. the journey to an end? Because actually, by that stage, it would just have been a relief to do that. All we wanted was a yes or a no, yes, kind of bring the journey to an end. No, keep on going because something's coming around the corner. We mm. got neither. Mm. And I would say to you today, Lisa, that to this very day, and we're talking, Merrin and I started trying for children back in the year 2000. We don't know why we haven't been given children. We were never given that answer. Mm -hmm. 
Now, think about Job. Yeah. We, as readers of the story of Job, know what was going on and why he was going through his trials. Do you know that Job never knew? Mm-mm. All he had in the end was God breaking in through the clouds and then speaking and saying, okay, who is this little human that uh, is, you know, mm-hmm. questioning my counsel? Um, and then he goes on and God gives him a, a great tour of the natural world and then basically is presenting himself. We never ever are told that Job is told about the devil doing all of this to him. Right. So there are some times in which God chooses to be silent about these things and that's hard. Yeah. And so the question is not so much why, but now it's, well, what next? Yeah. I think, I can't think of a story in which I've ever had a clear why that doesn't leave some sort of question still at the end of it. Mm. So we, um, part of our story is that we were at a boarding school for 18 years and thought we'd live and die there. We had no vision to move or serve anywhere else. And we had a very, um, I would call it traumatic uh, transition where um, God answered a, a very specific prayer. I had prayed, Lord, either give us fresh vision for staying or clear direction for going. And the I was very specific in, you know, Lord, you could even have so-and-so who's the head of this school where there's an open position, call my husband and invite him to apply <laughs> for the job. Wow. And uh, the next day, Stephen got an email asking him to apply for the open position. And wow. I never told Stephen I had even, I did nothing but have this conversation with the Lord. So he, um, he went ahead and, and met, you know, had a couple phone calls with this guy. Three weeks later, he interviewed. Uh, we made the decision on the way home to leave uh, the school and take the new job without a clear um, reason why. It was just that there was, uh, Stephen, Stephen walked away from that position feeling that God was saying, I'm with you wherever you go and you could stay and I'm with you or you can go and I'm with you um, and had given him a dream, which he had never had dreams like this before of these two large ships turning over and then coming back up and uh, they were side by side. And so he felt that the school's were represented by these ships that were capsizing and turning back over. Well, we walked into that new school situation, believing that the capsizing had already happened. Oh. Coming when this ship is now was about to level and we're <laughs> sailing forth on this new, you know, adventure skipped that capsizing only to find two years later that that ship was now capsizing and that head right. of school was now leaving. And we found ourselves two years later and what we thought was our promised land, feeling like the wilderness again. Right. Uh, and, and during that season, the number of times that we said, God, what in the world? Like, have we not been through enough? Has this not been a long enough journey? Have we not had, you know, uh, in, insecurity, instability, uh, fear, worry? H- have our children not gone through enough transition? Like, now what? And I kept on coming back to Hebrews 11 and what you were just saying about Jonah in that we're privy to the end of the story for all of these people of faith that have walked before us in scriptures. And yet we're not privy to the end of our story. Right. So we have to continue to say, okay, so what's the next thing you Mm. have for me right here? And, And that's why I'm so passionate about that Henry Blackaby prayer from experiencing God of show me your work that I may join you in it because I really yes. only know this day. Yeah. This moment. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. 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 Always love that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's that, that, that tension and when everything, so your dream was pulled from you essentially, or, or you, you made the decision it made me feel a little bit when you were describing it, that it was Stephen in that moment of saying, God is with me whether I continue on this journey or remain on the one I'm right now. Did you have that sort of sense of peace that you weren't walking in disobedience, but that God was with you in either continuing the infertility uh, journey for, for solutions versus resigning yourself to we're done. Yeah. I mean, certainly the question of, you know, were we right with God through all of this um, was a big one. I mean, we prayed through every 
every possibility, you know, whether we should, we started off actually looking at um, international adoption. We prayed about that. And then we were given some advice that actually everybody's going for international. You should try local. You might actually get placed earlier. Mm. Uh, that didn't work out. Um, so we prayed about all those things. We prayed, oh, I had to work for ages to think through the ethics of IVF from a Christian perspective. Mm-hmm. And back then in the early 2000s, there was not a lot written about it. Or what was written and I could find was actually a little bit outdated. And it was so hard. And I found people either wanting to just say, oh, look, you know, do whatever it takes uh, to, to get pregnant because, you know, God works after, God looks after the ethics. And you're just like, you know what, that's not really a good way to do Christian discipleship. Um, or the other side where, you know, people just as soon as they heard about this idea, they, they wouldn't even touch it. And it was so difficult to work that through. The other question that often comes up with all of this is, and people don't, wouldn't even ever suggest this to their friend, that they think to themselves, am I somehow sinning or is there some sort of deep-seated flaw in me or am I just not being faithful enough that mm. this is the reason why God isn't coming through? Now, I went through that a lot. Yeah. There's two very common responses that you can have when God, over the long term, doesn't give you what you've been asking for. Yeah. Number one is you can either shake your fist at, at heaven and say, mm. well, God, you know, what's wrong with you? That's what Marin did, and she would say that. Uh, or you can say, well, God's perfect. Everything that he does is absolutely right. So the problem must be with me. And so I kept on thinking, I'm not spirit-filled enough. I'm not faithful enough. I'm not prayerful enough. Something must be wrong with me. Mm. Uh, Both of those will ruin you. Um, And so the, the, the thing that you do is you walk forward, you seek good counsel, you pray every turning point and you seek God's counsel for all of those things. And if he chooses to remain silent, which sometimes he does, then you make the best decision that you can. We have since seen that God has turned our situation into profound ministry to other people. So much so that I would say that the ministry that has come out of first resurrection year and now the making of us uh, over the last, what, we're talking five years, would be more yeah. than the last 15 years of my being an apologist on a radio, you know, in radio, put together. Yeah. I mean, the the healing and people coming to faith, people returning to faith, um, people finding new hope starting again has been the thing. Is that the answer to your original question about the why? I'm not too sure. Mm. Um, we could have, I'm sure, had fruitful lives, you know, as many people do yeah. uh, with children. But yeah. what we have seen, though, is God turning it into a profound service to other people. And yeah. the verse that, that has been, that has struck me through writing the making of us in particular, it's probably a verse that very few of our listeners will have memorized, like so many other of Paul's verses. Yeah. But you know, Paul in Second Corinthians, he, he says, uh, he's talking about, the persecution that he and other apostles have faced. Yeah. And I think it's 2 Corinthians 4, and he says, death was at work in us, but life is at work in you. Now, this is a profound concept. It's as if something, there's this kind of this, this, this spiritual dynamic that happens in which if you simply remain faithful in the midst of your difficulty, And you remain open for God to use you in the midst of that difficult time, whether it be infertility or singleness or losing your career or not having the dream career or whatever it is that you dream of and you haven't got. It's as if like the space that is vacant within you because of what you don't have can become the very channel that God fills and then flows his grace through you to other people, to touch other people. When death is at work in you, life can actually flow through you by him, by the Spirit, into other people. And that's what we've seen happen with profound, and I can give you some stories, profound people being being changed and helped and healed. That's amazing. I, you know, as I was listening, I'm like, what verse is he going to say? What verse? Because, um, you know, initially I was thinking, uh, I think it's 2 Corinthians 3.3 3, that talks about the God of all comfort will comfort you and then enable you to comfort those with what you have been through, which it doesn't 
explain what, but why God do I have to have this story? Why do I have to be the, the person who becomes uh, the hands and feet of your comfort to those who, who are struggling? And yet I've seen him do that time and time again, that the yeah. story that he's written in our hearts becomes an opportunity for his glory, whether or not we have agreed to that story. <laughs> right, right, indeed. Right. And that, you know, that encouragement that you pass on to other people is is also a huge part of all of this. And, you know, not surprisingly that it comes out of Second Corinthians. So Paul is reflecting on his sufferings and he's bringing all of these things out. So the verse is actually Second Corinthians 4.12, uh, yeah. if people want to, you know, take a look at it. I do. Also, we could talk about, you know, his famous, you know, words about, you know, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Yes. And, I think so often we, t- we think about that just when we're having a bad day and, oh, you know, we'll turn my weakness into strength. And, and no doubt God will. But have you thought about, you know, the, the, the deepest loss in your life, the deepest brokenheartedness that you have, that yeah. that itself could be the very thing that God uses to, to touch and bless other people. And this is where, this is the, where, as I was writing The Making of Us, this is where it kind of, landed. I, I didn't have a fully formed answer to where I was going to land with the book. The book actually is a story. It's a memoir of a friend and I walking a pilgrimage, a 10-day pilgrimage from a little island in the north of England called Lindisfarne, which has got a, a major role to play in the conversion of, of England. Mm. And I would dare say then the faith spreading from England yeah. then to the United States and Australia and elsewhere. And so we were you know, making our way down to Durham, and you know, exploring the lives of these great missionaries of old seventh and eighth centuries and everything, mm-hmm. um, and I didn't really know where the whole story was going to end. But this is where it really did end: that the two big questions of identity and purpose. Uh, this is your moment when you're going through these things to discover number one a bigger sense of self. Mm-hmm. So many of us define ourselves by really two things: mm-hmm. uh, it's for men, and I think often it's slightly reversed for women, mm-hmm. uh, but for men, it's number one, career, mm-hmm. and number two, then uh, parental status. So mm. who, who am I? Uh, I'm uh, an engineer and I'm a father of four. Yep. For women, of course, number one, it's normally uh, I'm a mother or I'm a wife or maybe I'm single, which is why single women sometimes struggle with the identity yeah. question because our culture says this is the first place you go to. Yeah. And then number two, uh, it might be, and I do some work doing this, I teach or whatever it might be. Yeah. Yeah. Those two poles are great poles. They're wonderful bases of identity. But if you don't have them, or in fact, if you lose them, mm-hmm. who are you then? Oh, yes. The very fact is that you are much bigger than those two things. Yes. Right now, I'm sitting here and I'm a husband as well as uh, a writer, speaker, broadcaster. Uh, I am a son. I am a brother, I am a friend. How often have we at parties when somebody says, oh, who are you, Sheridan, said, I'm a friend. I know, (laughs) never, ever. But friendship is a holy calling. It's one of the most deep, profound ways that you can touch another person. So we find a bigger sense of self. And, of course, at the depth of that, at the core of that, all of those things can go still. But at the core of that is... First John chapter three, how great the love the father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Yeah. And that's the ultimate identity. And I'd written about that. I'd preached about it. I'd done all sorts of radio programs on it. When you go through a wilderness and, and don't get what you want or lose what you have had, that's when you discover if that is the, the very essence of your identity. And if it's not, this is the moment that it can become the very core of who you are. Yeah. I, I totally agree. And I was hoping you were going to go there on our core identity is as a child of God, because that's the only thing we can't lose. Everything else is perishable. Everything. Uh, and I, you know, I've been teaching this for the last uh, seven years in the coach training class I teach. I mean, the entire session three is on identity. And are we living out our biblical identity as a child of God? Or are we living out what we call our role identities, which is what you described? the mother role, the career role, and all those roles are in conflict usually to some degree and, and cause a a sense of tension and stress because how do you do all these roles? Well, whereas if you just kind of scale back and say, how do I, how do I live as a child of God? Well, when I go to my work, when I enter into my motherhood or my fatherhood, when I engage in that friendship, 
how do I enter into that as an ambassador of Christ filled with his love and then pouring out his love forth is a, is a completely different mindset. And, That's and it, it's, it's huge. And, and for me, it was crystallized because when we did have that move four years ago from the boarding school, I lost my identity. I was a mentor to teenage girls. My entire ministry was, was launched on that. Now the only teenage girls I have were my own and I wasn't in a season where I wanted to write about what was going on with them because I want them to be able to be their own people outside of the spotlight. And, and so I went through an identity crisis and, and a takeaway that I want to share with our listeners is this, like be careful to not grab another role identity to uh, quash the pain of the lost identity. That's good. Right. But to sit in the pain and I, I teach this in the class, I say this over and over again, I have um, my dad's side of the family is Jewish. So I have this illustration in my metaphor, in my experience where uh, when my grandmother died, we had her burial, but it was 12 months later in the Jewish custom before we had her unveiling where we returned to the gravesite. And uh, now the tomb was put in place and it was covered by a sheet. And we had a ceremony graveside. The sheet gets taken off as the unveiling. And then you take stones, just, you know, hand-sized stones, and you lay them on top of the memorial stone. And that is the closure of the year of grieving. Wow. And, and I come back to that again, I get goosebumps. I come back to that again and again, that, that when we recognize that there's loss, we have an opportunity to allow God to heal us over a long period of time. And if we avoid grieving the loss, whether it's the loss of a dream or career or relationship or a loved one, we're just creating idols in our lives that, that become the thing that we worship. And when that then gets taken from us, we're in a worse place than we were where, where we started. Yeah. But rather to kind of walk this 12 months out of saying, okay, God, I'm going to sit in the pain of it and give it to you. I'm going to cry out to you like the psalmist. I'm going to ask people to pray for me. I'm, I'm going to lower the expectations on myself for what I think I ought to be or should be or need to be. And, and just walk with you, God, and let your love fill me hmm. in, the, in the hard and hurting places. That's good stuff, Lisa. Man, preach it. Yeah. We're taking notes to you. All your listeners are taking notes and we're writing it down. <laughs> just yeah. feed, Good, just, because um, when, I, when I start grabbing for a new identity over loss, everybody can come back and say, hey, remember what you said? That's right. <laughs> like, that oh, was amazing. Absolutely. I find that when I go around speaking about these things now, because of course things, yeah. are, things are different now for me yeah. than where I was when we first came to the UK. And so, yes, I am now on the BBC, not as hosting a show anymore, which I've had to grieve deeply. And so what you've talked about there about grieving these things is just so important. I actually had to grieve this role of hosting shows. Yes. Um, but funnily enough, it actually allowed me to be in a position where I can share my own content, which as a host, it's a little bit more difficult. Yeah. But I'm, I'm back on as a contributor and speaking yeah. to a number, you know, a lot of people and being able to be a Christian voice into the mainstream, which I feel is my essential calling. Um, and the books did open up again, yeah. largely because of you lovely, blessed Americans <laughs> <laughs> who actually, it's Thomas Nelson Publishers, who, you know, didn't look at my platform and then decided to read the manuscript and see if there was something to it. And they wow. decided, yes, we need to publish Resurrection Year and then the making of us. Um, so the fact is that things have changed and I've got to be very careful that I don't just kind of start again, yes. really resting on the fact that, uh, well, now I, I have got the books out again and, and the radio and, you know, do you get to speak at conferences and things? Hang on, Sheridan. The fact is you have to go and be alone in your little spare room that we've got set up with a little chair in the corner that we've made our little tent of meeting, now a little, you know, inner sanctum. And you have to be so comfortable sitting in there, just you alone with God and dwelling in your relationship with him that nothing else matters. It, ne it never, never matters. And, and the fact is that this business of publishing, Definitely. The Making of Us, could still be my last book. The fact yeah. is if it yeah. doesn't sell enough copies, I may not have another contract. The fact is that BBC could turn around tomorrow and say, well, we no longer need your services anymore, Sheridan. 
Um, and the fact is that uh, this year has been a quieter year for speaking for me. Next year is is filling up, but this year has been quieter. And there's been part of me that's been, oh, I wonder if there's something wrong. Is there something wrong with me, Sharon? Hang on, you're going back to where you've been. So we always have to remind ourselves about this stuff, Lisa. It's just so important. You could have described my life right now as a writer. and <laughs> you know. And when you sit there and you measure your life by the metrics, whatever the field may be, you know, for you and I, it's contracts and, and engagements and numbers and all that. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think of our listeners, you know, for, for how many mamas do I know that they're measuring their metrics are their kids' performance, their, their milestones that they're reaching uh, uh, emotionally, mentally, academically, you know, if it's not going, oh no, is this the beginning and the end? Will my prodigal child emerge from this, you know, middle school year instead of, someone who's following hard after the Lord, or, I mean, there, there's all, we, we all have this commonality of struggle of, am I valuable? Am I worthy if I don't produce, if I don't get the check mark? And I love your visual description of kind of getting alone and saying, God, you and me, because if we don't have that baseline of value, everything else is worked. Yeah. Absolutely. Everything else. You know, um, a verse that's becoming just a couple of verses that have become just so precious for me now. Ephesians 5, the yeah. first couple of verses. Uh, Be imitators of God as dearly loved children mm-hmm. and live a life of love. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, if you haven't got a life verse, can I commend that one to you? Yeah. That covers everything. You know, be imitators of God. We become what we worship. So make sure that God is the number one thing that you're worshiping, not the conference speaker that you love and you read all of her books or whatever it might be. Uh, mm. Not the person that you can never reach up to and, and compare yourself to because it is so far ahead of you, etc. No, actually, you know, be imitators of God. That way your true self, we love that phrase, such a secular phrase, but actually our true selves, of course, is our Jesus shaped self, right? Yes. And so when we be imitators of God, it's going to be his character in our personality that actually re- results. Be imitators of God. As dearly loved children. So there's your core identity. Yep. Got those two things in place, go out and live a life of love. Yeah. And that's through your parenting and through your work. And if you've got no work and you don't have children, that's through the people you meet on the street, that's through your friends, that's through the people at church, that's whoever God brings across your path. There is your life mission. Oh, gosh, that verse is so just good. so precious for me now because that just says the essence of what we're called to be as humans. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, it, it fits for you, it fits for me, it fits for every culture. Right. Uh, it's, truly, it's truly a universal calling. Absolutely. I'm going to read a little bit more from it because it is one of my core values, this, this idea of love. God's been sharpening it in me in the last year. Um, and so I'm reading from that NLT translation. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do. And I love it that God has an emphasis on the doing There are things that we are called to do because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. And then here's his example. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. And and I really, I have a friend of mine who keeps uh, quoting something I said at a conference I spoke at last September, which I don't remember saying, but apparently I said, love God, wash feet. That's the end of it. Love God, wash feet. And hmm. um, I was like, well, that's pretty good. I didn't even know I said that. <laughs> that's but, right. That's tweetable. That's tweetable. But, but this a concept of what did, what did Jesus do? I mean, he laid down his life as a sacrifice. And I think if we take our suffering and say, get honest with God, say, here it is. And this, you know, part of my French, but this sucks. And I, I'd, I wouldn't want this for anybody else. And I don't want this for me, but this is what you have given me. If we just stay in that place, we will stay in that place. But if we can say, okay, this is what I'm, this is part of my doing. How do I turn outward and serve? Because Jesus suffered and served. Mm -hmm. Uh, He laid down his life. Therefore, how do we lay down our lives? And, you know, I think this next part of the passage uh, where three through, through five I mean, this is a section we like to ignore, and I've taught many times from this passage, and I hate having to read these verses, but I think they're relevant. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. 
obscene stories, foolish talks, coarse jokes. These are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God for a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. And, and I look at that passage and I feel like there's the obstacles to imitating Christ. Mm-hmm. There's the obstacles to serving others. That's, that's where we have to, in that corner alone with God, not only say, fill me with your love, give me your perspective, but show me what's standing in the way of me loving you and me loving others as your vessel on this earth. And, and if we can get that right, I think the amount of, of healing that we can experience, the freedom that we can experience, if we're willing to lay it all before the Lord comes. Yeah. Lisa, that's just so good. And, you know, the other thing that uh, I found as I was writing The Making of Us is that everything that you've talked about there in Ephesians, in Ephesians 5 and, and from verse 3, the antithesis to all of those ones. So instead of sexual morality, actual, you know, a, a sexual yeah. purity and a holiness to our lives, um, instead of greed, generosity, uh, instead of obscenity and foolish talk, you know, we actually have words of wisdom and creativity mm-hmm. and, and, and generosity to other people. I think we've minimized how powerful those are yeah. in a gradually and in some cases rapidly secularizing culture. I find that when I share stories of people who are living out those values, my friends at the BBC go, wow. Yeah. I think we've minimized the the power of just simple virtue. The majority of the verses in scripture that call us to something are not necessarily calling us to great schemes and great ventures. They are calling us to godliness, just exactly what you're talking about there. And generosity and grace and love and kindness can melt hearts and bring a tear to the eye to people who just so desperately need those things. And I, I think we minimize how powerful just just virtue is so yeah i agree i I wholeheartedly agree that there's we i think we live with more opportunity than we recognize when we are spending so much time focusing on our own pain rather than recognizing that that that's just part of our call as people of god that i have been reading uh i think i was in first peter that you know we shall suffer as Christ has suffered, and we can't measure it one to another, right? I can't, I can't, I don't need to look at your suffering through a decade of infertility, and, and say, oh, I feel so bad. Like you know, I don't know what I'm going to do with that. What I can, and start comparing it to my suffering. Well, I didn't have to go through something like that. I think we have to look at each other and say, how can I love Sheridan in his suffering? How do I be kind and and generous and yes. full of the the word, not not quoting chapter and verse per se, but just being present yes. in that suffering, and then say, Lord, please provide that for me when I'm in whatever suffering you walk me through. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and you know, Lisa, the other thing that you brought out of verse two is interesting because you know, live a life. Uh, uh, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I've straight away looked at that verse and said, okay, well, that's, that shows us what love is because yeah. again, we've got so many different ideas about love in our culture today. Yeah. Actually love is sacrifice, but actually where you took it when you were just um, talking then, you talked about then <laughs> Jesus suffering. Um, and I think that's really important that yes, it's, it's sacrifice, but it's, it's suffering. And actually he offered that suffering mm. to be, of course, redemptive suffering, didn't it? He did not die for himself. He died for us, for our sins uh, and for the brokenness of the world. Um, and this has been the great discovery for me as well, is that if you can present your, the, that, that lack and see that, you know, it can become the death that's at work and you can become life to others, then, then profound things can happen. And I think of some artists, Degas, Matisse, mm. um, who they, they wrestled. They really did wrestle. Degas, for the last 50 years of his life, uh, had more and more failing eyesight. And so he actually, at one point, 
he changed from paint to pastel because it was easier for him to be able to see. And um, Matisse had all sorts of, of problems. He actually was left wheelchair bound for the last ooh, 10, 20 years of his life uh, because of, I think, cancer surgery. Uh, and that's when he then moved from painting to collage and he would direct uh, his yeah. assistant to, to put these big pieces of paper up onto a larger piece of paper up onto the wall. And what did we see? We saw Degas do some of his best work. Yes. Uh, the Blue Dancers came out of this, some of his greatest masterpieces, and we saw Matisse do the Snail and these other great works that came out of his collage period. And that hit me that some of the great ministry and service we can bring can be just like that artwork, yeah. that it's actually when we're working with the limp, we're working with the thing that is has held us back, actually turns out to be God's greatest tool. Um, you know, mm. I was talking at a, a large church in the north of England once. Let me, let, let me just tell you this quick story and I'll wrap up and finish up and get out of your hair. This has been such an interesting no, conversation. Is, I, so I'm, I'm like soaking it in, especially this <laughs> art. I, I'm, I was an art major. So and right. I, my, my passion for art came alive during my semester in England. So I'm like, oh, taking me back. But yeah. Yeah, I bet. Story. Mm-hmm. I was uh, speaking at this church up in north england if anybody who's listening remembers david watson he wrote a number of very influential books um probably you know well known a couple of decades ago wrote some very um, famous choruses that got sung in churches all around the world anyway it's his old church saint michael the belfry and a uh, church of maybe 800 people or so and i was speaking in their evening service and I was speaking about these things that we've been talking about. And I'm talking about the fact that we need to really base our identity in being children of God and the fact that you can become a child of God if you're not a child of God and all these kinds of things. And this guy came up to me at the end of the service and he said, I don't go to church. I've never been to this church. I was just walking past and something drew me in. And I sat down and everything that you said tonight about broken dreams and starting again, it's exactly what I needed to hear. I've got broken dreams. I've got a broken marriage. My children won't have anything to do with me. And then he said the absolute clangor. He said, I had decided tonight to take my life. Mm. I was going to get blind drunk and I was going to jump off that bridge just down the road from the church. But from what you've said, I now know I can become a child of God and I can start again. Now, Lisa, that could only have come through a, a message that comes out of everything that we've talked about these last 50 minutes together. Yeah. And uh, I'm happy that just one man has been kept from the brink. Um, but I can tell you story after story of that. So this is what happens if we actually give our suffering to him who is just so clever at redeeming our suffering, yeah. whether it being singleness or childlessness or whatever it might be, is he can turn it to be the very thing that becomes the, the greatest source of blessing to other people if you if you let him radical that is powerful i've lost seven people to suicide so to think that you were instrumental that god used your brokenness that you were bold enough to share to rescue that that child of god phenomenal Mm. phenomenal would you uh close us in prayer would you be willing Mm. to do that i'd love to yeah Oh, Lord, it just feels like a very special conversation that Lisa and I have had and uh, also engaging um, our friend listening as well. And so I, I, pray for, I pray for our friend listening now. And I ask God that you, by your spirit, would come and fill that empty place, the place that has been vacated by the broken dream. Maybe it's not being able to find a husband. Maybe it's not being able to have children. Maybe it's not being able to have a second child or a third child. That's exactly the same kind of grief. Um, Maybe it's a career that's been lost or a career that was never found, or it might be estranged relationships or friendships that have never come about. Uh, I ask, Lord, that you would come into that emptiness now, that you would fill it, that it would be a source then of deeper intimacy between them and you, and then beyond that, then become a channel through which your love, your grace, and all the virtues we've been talking about uh, can then flow to others to be a source of healing and hope and redemption for other people through them. May, may, may deep identity become a real gift 
as a result of our conversation today for our friend. And may deep ministry be a result too, uh, for your sake and for the people that we will touch their sake, uh, but also for, for our sake. Uh, it is a joyful thing to be used by you. And we just want to, we want to experience more and more of that. Uh, so I ask this in Jesus' name and know that you want it much more than I ask it. So we ask it confidently. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for your time. This conversation has been super encouraging to me. I know it will be for our listeners. So Sheridan, would you let everybody know where they can find you? Thank you. Yes. Well, uh, probably the easiest URL to give you is themakingofus.com. So that'll uh, take you to the book, but that actually takes you to just to a page on my website. And so uh, if you want to make contact as a result, then you'll find the about tab and you can contact me through the contact tab and everything else, but themakingofus.com. And also you might like actually a lot of the things that we've been talking about, I put into a creed, just like a, but can read it in about 90 seconds. I've actually got a Post it up on my wall. Yeah, see it there. <laughs> print that out. You can see it in the background. Yeah, We're talking yeah. via Skype, so you can see that. And I read that every day, and it's just something to ground us in some of the things we've talked about. There's also a really nice video you can see too. So you can download that. You can watch the video. That might be a source of, of daily inspiration for you to kind of ground some of these things we've been talking about in further. And you also have a podcast. Am I right? I do, but it's nowhere near as uh, as wonderful as yours, Lisa. Um, That's not true. <laughs> because I've kind of stepped out of being the hosting role. I, I do have a podcast. It's up there. It's called the Make. It's called um, More Than This. You can find it on iTunes okay. and everywhere. I actually just put my BBC stuff on it now. So if you just want some short, oh. four five minute inspirational kind of messages, one one a week, that's what you'll get. Uh, occasionally I'll put up a classic interview that I've done over the years, you know, but really that's all it's, it's there for at the moment. It's one of the big areas of my life that feels feel like I need to, to bring some sort of focus to. And uh, I tell you, Lisa, I'm learning from you. So good. That's awesome. <laughs> well, thank you for being here with us. And thank you everyone for listening to the more to be podcast. We are praying you've experienced a fresh encounter with God and his word during your time with us today. If you'd like to show your support for the ministry of More To Be and our podcast, we'd love for you to become a More To Be Sisterhood Circle member. You'll be blessed with our signature courses and resources while being a blessing to others. To learn more, visit moretobe.com slash podcast for a special link. May you continue to think biblically and live transformed to be more like Jesus as you seek to join God in his work every day.